Now, Rommel was a pretty intimidating character. He was up to his eyeballs day after day, we know that from his diary, with journeys out to the front. He was preparing France for the invasion battle that was about to come any day. He was worried about where the invasion was going to come. On the one hand, he had Adolf Hitler, who had said to him and all the Western commanders, the Western generals and field marshals who had assembled on the Oberzalzberg in, uh, in Germany on March the 20th, 1944, Hitler had said to them, I tell you the invasion is going to come in two places, either in Normandy, in France, or very close by in Brittany. In fact, Hitler himself said he was almost certain the Allies were going to invade Normandy, and of course he was quite right. Whereas the general staff said, Mein Führer, it's not going to come in Normandy at all, it's going to come in the part of Calais. That's the shortest route. Have a look at the map, Mein Führer, it's only 20 miles. In other words, the German general staff said effectively that the, uh, that the Allied armies, the British and the Americans, are going to cross the channel using the British Rail Ferry, effectively. They're going to come the, the shortest possible route and head straight for the Ruhr. And Hitler said, no, they won't do that, they'll make the indirect route, they'll seize the Cherbourg Peninsula first and use that as a base for landing us. He was absolutely right. And I've got it in verbatim in the speech he made on March the 20th, 1944. And all the telegrams he sent subsequently to the commanders in Normandy saying, you've got to prepare Normandy. I'm insisting on additional reinforcements for Normandy because that is where the invasion is going to come. But Rommel had been told by the general staff, it's not going to come there at all, Field Marshal. It's going to come in the Pas de Calais, which is up by Dover. So he was torn between reinforcing the 7th Army in Normandy, as the Fuhrer had ordered, and reinforcing the 15th Army in the Pas de Calais where the General Staff, Speidel and the German High Command were instructing. So Rommel really didn't have time to talk politics when, General, when Colonel Hofhacker came to see him on about June the 1st or 2nd, 1944. In fact, after Hofhacker had gone back to Paris, he turned to his staff and said, strange chap, what was he after? Couldn't make head or tail of him. And that's the way an English officer said, but that's exactly what Rommel said to his staff. Couldn't make head or tail of him. What was he after? Because Hofacker was very worried. I mean, he's only, a, he's only a, a lieutenant colonel in the German Air Force. And here he is trying to win over the Field Marshal Rommel, one of the top Nazis, one of Hitler's most important characters, one of his most important generals. He's trying to win him over for a plot against Hitler. So, in fact, Hofacker didn't say anything at all. Hofacker just... Uh, talked in general terms. But human nature being what it is, when Hofacker went back to Paris, he said to Stroopnagel, the military governor who was in the plot, I've won him. He's fire and flammer. He's fire and flame on our side. I've won Rommel right over. Couldn't hold him back. We know all this because I've, I, I know what Stroopnagel later on said. But you can see how fate is beginning to wind up dark clouds over the future career of Field Marshal Erwin Rommel. Spidel and his gang, he was having a little convivial party that evening out of all the anti-Hitler plotters because the old man, Rommel, had gone back home to Germany a couple of days earlier on leave, assured by Berlin that the invasion wasn't imminent. Rommel had gone back to Germany, Spidel was in charge and he'd invited all the plotters around for an evening's drinking. And they had a lot of wine and a lot of cognac that evening. I know that because I have the private diary of Admiral Ruger, who was the naval officer on Rommel's staff, and he describes in his shorthand secret diary how they all got blind drunk that evening at Spidel's headquarters on Spidel's staff, and they went to bed at 1.15 a.m., although the first messages had arrived already from Normandy of massive parachute landings. Spidel said, unimportant, and they all went to bed. Around about 6 a.m., 
is beginning to get nervous because they're getting more warnings of parachute landings over the whole of uh, the Normandy area, dummy parachute landings elsewhere, and as the dawn is beginning to rise, they can see a huge invasion fleet on the horizon. Spidel is unconcerned. In the war diary of Spidel's staff, Army Group B, for three and a half hours, suddenly there are no entries at all. They'd all gone to bed for three and a half hours between 6 a.m. and 9.15 a.m. that morning as though nothing at all had happened. What had happened? Well, what had happened was a hundred tanks had already landed by the time they got up, a hundred thousand men had hit the beaches, and the Seventh Army was under colossal onslaught from the, uh, uh, the initial waves of the, the Anglo-American invasion. By that time, the invasion was virtually impossible to, to, to ward off. Rommel got the news at 9 a.m. that morning at his home in, near Stuttgart, he had to drive 790 kilometers back to his headquarters. By the time he got there at 10 p.m. that night, the battle is already lost. On the 17th of July, 1944, Rommel is driving in his motor car behind the front lines, being driven there in this large open Hawk motor car, a six-seater, rather like a grand touring uh, sports car, when a British Spitfire has come down out of the clouds and has machine gunned the road and has killed his driver, and the driver, the car has crashed off the road into the ditch, headed into a tree, and Rommel is smashed unconscious. He has a quadruple skull fracture. When he comes to a day later, he's in a French hospital being looked after by a French medical team. They fear for his life. They evacuate him back to a rear hospital a couple of days later. And on July the 21st, he hears for the first time that on the day before, an attempt has been made on Hitler's life. A German staff officer has left a bomb under Hitler's conference table in East Prussia, has promptly quit the room. Four of Hitler's staff have been killed outright in the blast. Hitler himself, by a miracle, has emerged. A few splinters in his arm and a bit bruised and dented, but otherwise unscathed. A witch hunt begins to find out who are the perpetrators of this appalling stab in the back. Now, we can say with great certainty that up to the moment of his injury, Rommel's fanatical loyalty to Adolf Hitler was unchanged, because in his private conversations, which Admiral Ruger wrote down in shorthand in his diary, which I had when I wrote my book on Rommel, Trail of the Fox, in his private conversations, Rommel continues right up to the middle of July to express the utmost fanatical loyalty to Adolf Hitler, even in his private circle of friends. When Admiral Ruger says to him on one occasion, wouldn't it be the right thing now to try and kind of make some deal with Montgomery before the big breakthrough comes? And to do a deal with Montgomery whereby we just open up the Western Front and then advance side by side, shoulder by shoulder with the British and the Americans on Berlin and throw the Russians back. <coughs> Rommel says, well, I'm convinced that this is going to be the ultimate solution. But I am also certain of one thing. The Fuhrer is such a genius such a strategic and military genius that he will take precisely the right decision when the time comes. Now, a man who says that on July the 14th, 1944, is not going to be the man who knows anything at all about a bomb being put under that genius's table just six days later. But these quotations, you don't find them in other people's biographies on Rommel because they haven't done the work. They haven't found these diaries. When Rommel is told about the attempt on Hitler's life, Suddenly the scales fall from his eyes, and he said, the crazy lunatics, what on earth are they up to? Killing the Fuhrer, they must have been out of their minds. And when General Spidel comes to see him, stricken with a guilty conscience, of course, a couple of days later still, 
Rommel turns angrily to Spiedel and says, I now understand what that guy Hofacker was talking about. I now understand what he was getting at. They must have been out of their minds. Well, he says, I, I'm glad I had nothing at all to do with it. That, however, is not the perception in Hitler's headquarters, because Hofacker is arrested almost immediately after the bomb plot. Somebody blabbed on him. Hofacker is arrested. He's a lieutenant colonel in the German Air Force, and the only way he sees to save his own miserable skin is to play Scheherazade. He starts singing. He starts telling tales on every name he can imagine, and every time they're just about to take him off and hang him, he says, wait, there's a few more people I can mention if you give me a couple more days. So he starts singing. And on July the 31st, 1944, Adolf Hitler sends for General Yodel. Correction, on August the 1st. Adolf Hitler sends for General Yodel, and I've got the diary of General Yodel, who was the chief of the German Armed Forces Operations Staff. 5 p.m., the Führer has read out to me the report that Kaltenbrunner now has, Kaltenbrunner, the chief of the Gestapo, about the testimony of Lieutenant Colonel Hofacker on his talks with K and R. K, Field Marshal Kluger, the new Commander-in-Chief West, who has replaced Rundstedt a few weeks earlier. R is Rommel. The Führer says he's going to look for a new Commander-in-Chief West. He's going to have R uh, questioned after, he, after his convalescence, after he gets better, and then he's going to retire him without any further fuss. Interesting. The old friend, Rommel and Hitler, Hitler didn't want anything unpleasant to happen to Rommel, he was going to question him about his involvement in the plot, the July 20 plot, and then retire him without any further fuss. But things didn't go like that because Hofacker is talking more. In a further testimony, Hofacker says, when I went to see Rommel, he couldn't be restrained. He says, you can count on me when the time comes, which is totally untrue. <coughs> Stultenagel, the, the, the military governor of Paris, reports precisely the same. Stultenagel, is fetched by the Gestapo from Paris and taken back to Germany for questioning. As he crosses the German frontier, he shoots himself in the eye, tries to kill himself. He just shoots himself blind and with sufficient blood transfusions, General Stutenagel is brought back, a rather pathetic figure, to Germany where he's subjected to Gestapo interrogation, where he says that he understood that Rommel was on their side, that Rommel was part of the plot. You see the tendency, ladies and gentlemen, is these people, they know that unless they're going to play their cards very carefully, they're for the high jump. And the only way they can save themselves is to say, well, if you're going to hang me, there's one or two other people who are going to hang too. How about your Field Marshal Pluger? And how about the big one, Field Marshal Rommel too? And this is the awkward one for the Germans, for Hitler, because he can't really hang Rommel. So he picks up everybody else. He picks up Pluger's chief of staff, Blumentritt, who seems to have known of the plot, and then again, he doesn't seem to have known of the plot. And then on September the 4th, 1944, he has uh, arch-villain Hans Spidel, Rommel's chief of staff, arrested and picked up by the Gestapo for questioning. Spidel also sings like a canary. And it's very interesting, if I go to the National Archives now, ladies and gentlemen, and say, I want to see the Gestapo interrogations, the famous Kaltenbrunner reports on the people of the 20th of July, they'll give you a whole fistful of the reports of the interrogations of everybody who is unimportant. But the interrogations are Spidel, and Heusinger and other generals in Germany who subsequently became top NATO generals are not in the files anymore. They've vanished. They've been sanitized. You can't see them anymore. But I know what Spidel said, because one of the documents that General Kirchheim's widow gave me was a report from General Kirchheim on the Court of Honor that was held by the German army to consider the case of Hans Spidel. 
You see, in trying to preserve its traditional privileges after the appalling catastrophe of the 20th of July, which was a terrible blot on the name of the German army, the German army said, well, at least let us try our own, our own criminals. Before these people are turned over to the people's court to be tried and hanged, let the German army court of honor try them first to decide whether they are worthy of being put on trial, to see whether there's a case to answer. And the court of honor, in the case of General Hans Speidel, met on October the 4th, 1944. I know exactly what happened there because the five German generals who comprised the army's court of honor consisted of General Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel, the chief of the Heim Command, General Guderian, the famous German, German panzer commander, General Rundstedt, General Kirschheim, and another. Now, Kirschheim was a staff officer who had already rubbed up Rommel the wrong way in the North Africa campaign in 1941. He didn't really like Rommel. And he writes in his own private papers an account of this court of honor. He says the prosecution was directed by Kaltenbrunner himself, the chief of the Gestapo. Kaltenbrunner said that Speidel had admitted under testimony that he knew in advance of the plot on Hitler's life. But Hofacker, who had come and told him about the plot on Hitler's life, had told him, Speidel, and he, Speidel, had done the proper thing by reporting it to his superior, Field Marshal Rommel. At this, writes Kirchheim in his report, an embarrassed silence fell on the court and the Plumenus Schweigen. An embarrassed silence because we realized that either we were going to have to exonerate Rommel or exonerate Speidel, one or the other. If Speidel was telling the truth, he had done his duty and had reported it to Rommel, and Rommel had told nobody. If Speidel was lying, then Rommel was in the clear. We decided that the correct thing to do was to ask for further inquiries to be made in the case of Speidel. And in that way, they saved Speidel's life, effectively, because the matter was then put on ice, on the back burner. But at that moment, the problems for Rommel started. This is quite plain. Rommel's already got problems. He's got a quadruple skull fracture. He's been evacuated back to a hospital in Germany. And he becomes gradually aware of the rumors and the whispers going around that he was supposed to have been involved in the 20th of July. There are Gestapo cars shadowing him. Gestapo officers are stationed at both ends of the country lane outside his house. When he goes walking in the fields with his son Manfred Rommel, who is now the Lord Mayor of Stuttgart, he takes a loaded gun with him. He also takes with him in his inside breast pocket a fistful of papers, copies of telegrams which he sent to the High Command during the Battle of France to show how he pleaded for reinforcements and how he pleaded for reinforcements even before the invasion of Normandy because he thinks that the problem that's building up around his name is not connected with the 20th of July, because he knows he's in the clear, he knew nothing about it. But he thinks he's going to be made the fall guy, the scapegoat for the collapse in France. So just in case he is arrested here in midfield, walking with his son, he wants to have the papers in his pocket so that he can defend himself at the court-martial when the time comes. The dossier, the Normandy dossier, he carries it with him at all times, so he tells Manfred. And on October the 1st, when he finds out that Spidel, his chief of staff, has been picked up, a Swabian like himself, a close friend of his, he's a close friend of Spidel and his family, he sits down and he writes a letter to his Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler, Rommel does. And I found this letter among the private papers of, of Helmut Lang, his ordinance, and I'll read out one or two paragraphs. Because, again, it shows that Rommel was totally in the dark about the 20th of July, and that he was an upright, decent man who, even at this moment, did what he could to protect Spidel, regardless of what was happening, regardless of what Spidel was saying about him, and regardless of, why, of what Spidel would, would eventually do to, to kill him.
Mein Führer, wrote Rommel on the 1st of October 1944. I had to translate it from the German as I go along. Unfortunately, my state of health is not good enough as, as I would have wished. The quadruple skull fracture, the rather unfavorable de development of things in the West and uh, since my injury, and not least the dismissal and arrest of my previous chief of staff, Lieutenant General Spidler, which I only learned by chance, have really taxed my nerves far beyond what I can bear. I just don't feel capable of putting up with any kind of fresh burden. General Spider was attached to me in the middle of April 1944 as the successor of Lieutenant General Gauser, as my chief of staff. He was warmly recommended by Colonel General Seitzler and his previous Army Commander, uh, Infantry General Gurla. Shortly before he arrived at Army Group B, he received from you personally the Knight's Cross, and he was, uh, uh, he was promoted to Lieutenant General. In the West, Spidel, in the very first weeks, showed himself to be a remarkably capable and energetic Chief of General Staff. He ran a tight ship, he had uh, much understanding for the troops, and he really helped me to get ready, uh, to get the Atlantic War ready for the invasion battle. When I went off to the front, which was almost every day, I could rely on the fact that General Spidel behind my back was carrying out the orders that I discussed with him and issuing them to the armies and uh, he was carrying out conferences with all the other areas and headquarters exactly as I, as I would have wanted. Then he goes on, unfortunately the, the defence battle in Normandy, because that's what he's worried about, the fact that he's going to be made scapegoat. Unfortunately the defensive battle in Normandy has turned out not to be, um, we couldn't run it the way we wanted so that we couldn't defeat the enemy while he was still on the water uh, or even on the beaches. I've set out the reasons why in the various documents that I sent to you and which General Schmunt probably showed to you at the time. In the final paragraph he says, um, I really can't understand uh, what has been the reasons, no, here he says, up to the, the day of my injury, September the, uh, July the 17th, Spider was always at my side and Field Marshal Kluger, Commander-in-Chief West, also seems to have been very satisfied with him. I frankly cannot understand what has led to the dismissal of Spider and to his arrest. His final paragraph is, you, my Fuhrer, know how I have always done everything in my power and ability, whether in the Western campaign, the French campaign 1940, or in Africa 1941 to 1943, or in Italy in 1943, or again here in the West in 1944. I've done everything I could. I have had only one thought in uppermost in my mind, always at all times, to fight and to win victories for your, for your new Germany. The last letter that we have from Rommel to, to Hitler, I quoted it in full my book. It's a very interesting letter. A few days later, Rommel is told that he's got to turn up in Berlin for questioning. He doesn't understand what's going on. He, he, he's still seriously ill. He can't sleep for months because of the, 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 the skull damage. He sends a message back to the army personnel office saying, I can't come to Berlin. My, 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 my health isn't good enough to travel. Finally, on October the 13th, Hitler sends for Field Marshal Keitel, the chief of the German High Command, and it dictates a letter to him from Keitel to Rommel, which runs as follows. Field Marshal Rommel, you will see from the enclosed testimonies of General Speidel, General Stuplagel, and Lieutenant Colonel Hofacker that you have been incriminated in the attempt on my life, or on the attempt on the Fuhrer's life. You alone can know whether this is genuine or not whether there's any truth in these allegations or not. If you consider you are innocent, it is open to you to come to Berlin and answer eventually to the People's Court. If you know that you cannot put up a defence, then you as a German officer know what is the best thing for you to do. 
It's a very clear hint of what he's got to do. Keitel sends for two German army personnel officers, General Bergdorf and General Meisel, the head of the personnel office and his deputy, and says, carry this letter down to Rommel and show it to him and tell him what he's got to do. October the 14th, the two German generals turn up at lunchtime. Rommel knows they're coming because he's received a phone call in advance. He knows he's going to get a visit from the German army personnel office. Optimistically, as he sometimes is, he thinks they may be going to discuss with him a new army group command, perhaps in the Kurland or fighting in, on the Eastern Front. But the pessimist in him says it might just be bad news. It might be that they're going now to call me in for questioning over the collapse in France. Oldinger, that's his adjutant, he says, Oldinger, have that Normandy dossier ready. I may need it. And he waits for the arrival of the two generals at lunchtime. When they turn up in a very small, modest car, Rommel doesn't know it, but the funeral wreath has already arrived that morning at the local railroad station. He doesn't know it, but for 20 miles around, every autobahn has been sealed off to prevent his escape. The two German generals come in, he invites them for lunch, and they say, no, we can't stay for lunch, this is business. Rommel is rather shocked, he invites them into the smoking room, and he says, how can I help the gentleman? And by way of answer, General Burgdorf hands to him the letter. The letter which says, Field Marshal Rommel, you've been accused in the testimony of Speidel, Hofacker, and Stupnagel of complicity in the plot on the Fuhrer's life. If you are innocent, come to Berlin. Answer the People's Court. If you know that you cannot answer these allegations, then you as an officer know what you have to do. What can Rommel do at this time? What are the thoughts that go through his tortured brain, his sleep-racked, fractured skull, his tortured, painful brain, he can only think to himself, this is the end. I can't really go to Berlin and say, I knew nothing about the Fuhrer's plot. I knew nothing about the attempt on his life. I knew nothing about this treachery. All I was planning to do and discussing with my colleagues and my staff was possibly opening up the Western Front and making common cause with Montgomery and Eisenhower and marching against the Russians. I can't do that. If I do that, I'm a dead man anyway. My life is over. But if I admit that I knew about the plot, then I can save General Spidel's life. My good old friend Spidel. It's ironic, isn't it? So Rommel, in that moment, takes the decision, which is a decision I really have to admire that man for. It's the most upright and honest decision that any German general has taken, certainly in World War II. He turns to General Burgdorf and he says, Jawohl, ich habe mich vergessen. Yes, I must have forgotten myself. It's all true. But he then goes on to say, and Burgdorf then says, well, if you now do as an officer would have to do under the circumstances, the Fuhrer makes the following guarantee to you. You will be given a state funeral as a great hero. The German public and the world will be told that you have died of your injuries received in the strafing attack in July. Even your wife will not be told the truth. Nobody will ever find out. You have the Fuhrer's word for that. And in fact, Hitler kept his word, as it subsequently turned out. Rommel says, but I can't shoot myself. And Burgdorf says, oh, no, no, you mustn't shoot yourself. We, we can have no damage to your skull. Nothing that will show. He says, we have brought a substance with us that works in 20 seconds. Rommel says, can I take leave of my wife and, and son? And they grant him that request. And he goes up to see his wife, Lucy, who's lying upstairs in bed. And uh, he says to Lucy, 
We know this because Lucy wrote a graphic account of it, an affidavit subsequently, when uh, she was trying to establish what actually happened. Ronald said to Lucy, it's extraordinary. Spidel, Stutnagel, and Hofacker have said that I was involved in the plot of the 20th of July. They said that if it hadn't been for my head injury, I would now be in, put in command. I have no possible salvation. So in 20 minutes, I will be dead. Manfred, his son at that time, 15 years old, comes into the room, bustling in and rather puzzled by the extraordinary atmosphere that he finds between mother and father. And <clears throat> the father says the same to Manfred. Manfred and Rommel, the field marshal, leave the bedroom together and go downstairs, and Rommel puts on his great leather top coat and walks out into the garden, followed by General Burgdorf and General Meisel. Manfred still can't understand what's happening. <clears throat> Rommel, <clears throat> putting on his coat, he finds he's got the house keys in his pocket and the wallet. And he takes his wallet out and he gives it to his son, and he takes the house keys and gives these to his son as well, and he says, I don't need these anymore. And he climbs into the back seat of this little car and the two other generals pile in beside him and there's no room for Rommel and they shut the doors and Rommel winds down the... Uh, no room for, for Manfred, so, so he stays outside and Rommel, the field marshal, sitting inside, winds down the window and he says to Manfred, Manfred, look after Frau Speidel. I don't think I've managed to save her husband. And the car drives off down the lane. It drives off down the lane a couple of hundred yards. We know this because I have the eyewitness account written immediately afterwards uh, by the SS corporal who was driving the car from the Führer's motor pool in Berlin, a, a corporal called Heinrich Doser. Heinrich Doser said, we drove down the road a couple of hundred yards and then Burgdorf tapped me on the shoulder and told me to stop the car and get out. And then he told me to go for a walk for five minutes. When I came back, writes Doser, I found Field Marshal Rommel slumped over on the back seat of the car. He wasn't groaning. He was sobbing, schlussend. I sat him upright, but his hat had fallen off, so I put his hat back on again. And thus died Field Marshal Rommel. He died a hero, really, to the last moment of his life. He had fought his battles cleanly. He had always preferred to fight with tactics in a way that, in a way that saved lives on both sides. He didn't like to see soldiers being killed. He told his own troops to dig in. He tried to outwit and trick the enemy into surrender. And he died in a way that saved the life of his close friend, General Spidel, although by that time he probably knew that he had precisely that man to thank for the fact that he had been handled the Socratic, he had been handed the Socratic uh, dish of poison to swallow.